0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. We get asked a lot of good questions here on the show. They come up in the comment section, they're emailed to us. Sometimes we get stopped at conventions and panel discussions. Some questions come in with enough frequency that we select them for mass consideration, which is the point of today's show. On the list for discussion includes, but it's not limited to, management, design process, career skills, and architectural cocktails. Andrew and I answer your burning questions where almost nothing is off limits. Welcome to episode 133, Ask the Show 2023 Fall Edition. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Construction Specialties, maker of architectural building products designed to master the movement of buildings people, and natural elements. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are answering your questions. I believe that this is round eight, which would make this, I think, year four of doing this. Maybe so. It's been a while for sure. It's been a while. So I have to admit that I like these shows a little bit more now. Than when we used to do them. And I was trying to think of why that would be. And I think it's because. While they were always interesting. I think we've done enough to wear. Like the obvious. Questions like why don't architects get paid more. Like we've gotten a lot of those out of the way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But the novelty. Of like what color underwear am I wearing. Like we're finding a balance between. Those <laughs> two extremes of questions. Yeah. I did write down that it's, it's a uh, sky blue for the record in case, you know, someone's keeping track. I get asked that question every single, t- I mean, now it's like a bit, like everybody sends, oh, what color is your underwear? I'm like, man, y'all don't need to know that. And you just tell them anyway. <laughs> I just, you know what? I'm going to start telling them to say, you know what? It's purple. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. So let's get into it.
2: Wait, wait, In true architect style, it's black. It should Always be. Always black. It should black, be. Black, 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 black. Yeah. Well, we
0: say it's black unless you're doing laundry, in which case it should be black. (laughs) Something along those lines. Yes. All right, so let's get into it. We have probably more questions on our list today than we actually want to take the time to go through, but we're going to give it a go. And I think most people know how this process works, but in case you don't, people submit their questions through any myriad of delivery mechanisms. Most of them come in through Instagram because we actually create up a forum for that sort of thing to come in. And if we choose... To answer their question on the show, we try to show them a little appreciation and give them a shout out and a link back to their Instagram page. Moving forward, I was thinking about this. We might end up pivoting off of Instagram since I get questions from other places, like maybe Instagram is not that interesting to people anymore. And maybe we need to start sharing people's Discord handles. I
2: was
0: like, there's got to be something. Interesting. Like the number of times people are like, hey, here's this link. I'll send this to you via Discord. That's happening more and more to me, but That's interesting. we can say that later. It's, we actually have a question on, on this a little bit downstream from where we're at. So let's get to it. And in no particular order, other than how I type them up, the first question comes to us from Luda Ludacafilla. <laughs> you know what? I hate having to read these names because you know what? Yeah,
2: they're the worst. Yeah. Yeah. No offense to anybody, but it's just, it's hard to. Figure out exactly what it's supposed to be.
0: Yeah, some are easy, and they might be saying it's Luda or uh, Luda I mean, like, you just, I don't know. And I want to spell it because that's even worse. So, from person number one.
2: <laughs> or Luda Kafila.
0: <laughs> Something. Yeah, I don't know. Luda I don't know. Yeah, Whoever that person is, we're totally bombing like every <laughs>
2: possible version. We of apologize. That. Yes.
0: Yeah, but we're starting, we're kicking the show off with your questions. So, there you go. Yeah. So, their question was, when planning to start a design, what do you consider starting it with? For example, like, do you start with the plan? Pretty sure we've answered this question on a different show, maybe not so directly, but we've talked about this before.
2: Yeah, we have. And for me, I typically start with designing in section, if we're talking about the building. Now, of course, if we're just talking about a blank sheet of paper, I'm going to start with understanding the site, site arrangements, and where things should go, and where I want the building to be sited on the site. But if we're talking about the building, yeah, I typically design in section. I'm a section designer. I do almost all my stuff in section before I get to plans at all. Because to me, section is about the space that I'm actually creating, whereas plan is just about the organization of the program. So my answer would be section. Okay. That answer always makes my brain break a little bit.
0: Because <laughs> in my head, I always kind of go, well, I kind of, kind of. At least start down the path of solving the problem of how does the space work before I actually think Mm -hmm. about making the space better, right? And so, for me, I always start with the plan. Yeah. Now, the easy thing to say is to say, I kind of do all of them at the same time, which there's a little bit of that goes on. Yeah, that's true. But it's different based on the type of project you're working on. So, for example, if I'm doing a residential project, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to site it for the most part, because. Most of the projects I work on are on suburban lots, and they're like, here's your piece of dirt. that You need to put the front of the building at this point. You got side yards. I mean,
2: like... Here's the setbacks and all that. Yeah, it's not as complicated. It kind of
0: tells you. Yeah. Now, there's things I can do and go, well, here's east and the west, and so when I start programmatically laying out, I might say, I'm going to deal with my massing in such a way so that I get morning light in these rooms and a block afternoon light in these rooms. Like, those things happen, but that's not based on how I put this building on the piece of dirt. It's how I arranged the spaces within that
2: piece of dirt. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I would imagine that part of the plan organization first maybe comes from the fact of doing residential work as much as you did. And that's, I don't know, it seems like a more practical place to start, but also that the variance in section possibilities aren't too humongous sometimes in residential work. Sure. Like they might be in commercial work or other things like that, that, more to what I've been doing. And so I start with either main space, like if there's a lobby or there's a big auditorium, that's where I will start. When I start thinking about section, it is related to a program, but it's usually what I'm already thinking is going to be the most impactful programmatic space. Right. And that varies. And so maybe that's why. I don't know. No, no, no. Just a shot in the
0: dark there. No, no. I, I totally believe that because since making the switch over to Book Power where I'm at now four years ago, most of the projects we start with have to do with the site and where we're putting building, because now we're dealing with parking garages and 450,000 square foot of building and surface lot and frontage road and where do you turn in and where do you turn out? And how do I access things for dumpsters and mm-hmm. trucks and delivery? How you move around on that piece of dirt can be solved a lot of different ways. And so on these big buildings, 100% we start thinking about programmatically what's happening at the ground plane level before we start thinking about what room is next to one room. And the truth is, a lot of these big buildings, we have like a designed exterior building before we have much more
2: than blocks of spaces on the inside. Yeah. You've got this floor. This floor is blank because somebody's going to come in and rent it. Yeah. And arrange it sort of however they want at some point. Yeah. yeah. So we deal with back of house
0: stuff and kind of the amenitized space like lobby,
2: mm-hmm.
0: all the kind of coffee bar areas and workout gym facilities. And there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. And that's a big part of when we do, say, a corn shell office building. That figures into it. But we really just need to know you go from this space into that space. And that happens like once you, beyond that, you're just doing the core. You're doing elevators and stairs and Mm -hmm. Z corridors and things like that. So it's a lot different. So this answer really depends on the type of project that you're working on. I can see that for sure. Super unfulfilling answer for (laughs) Luda (laughs) Ludacophila. Okay. I hope that gave you some direction. There is no one particular way to do it. I do think it kind of varies on the type of building that you're working on, but the truth is, is even on all those buildings, I mean, when I'm thinking, I think of massing, Mm. you know, I mean, it's just, you kind of think about all of it a little bit at the same time, but for me, my default, since the bulk of the projects I've actually designed have been residential and scale, I always start with plan. I still do. So, Mm -hmm. okay, let's go on to the next question. This came from the much more easy to pronounce Josh K. Brown, 52. So I think we nailed that one. That's hope. <laughs> so their question is advice to people early in their architectural career pursuing licensure and beyond. All right. That's a humongous question. First off, Josh, you got to dial that back a little bit.
2: <laughs> so that is a singular episode question They're right there. That is a singular episode question.
0: But he wrote in there specifically pursuing licensure. So part of it, I don't think this is necessarily a question about the advice about getting licensure that's step 1 in this process and then beyond that so i have about 10 people we have a mentorship program talked about it way too many times on the show and i got like 10 people i sit down and meet with once a month for 30 to 45 minutes vast majority of them are i don't know between new graduates to 10 years out of school that's the bulk of those 10 folks and probably half of them either were or are now going through the process of getting their license so we spend part of Time a lot of times saying, How's it going? Fact so it's like 10 30 in the morning, Sunday, we're recording this. I had a text exchange with one of the people that I mentor about testing yesterday on Saturday. We exchanged some messages about that process. So, well, let's see, the best way to put this everybody moves too slow when they go through the licensing process, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying it's hard, I'm just saying get to it because, yeah. This is what your job is. I don't think that studying for the test should be seen as a burden. It should be seen as an opportunity because it's all cool stuff a lot of times. If you really think about what they're trying to teach you, it's kind of cool. It's kind of what you think, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. That's kind of a mental place to put yourself that makes the process of studying a lot easier, I feel. But I'll have people that'll go three months between tests and I'm like, no, four weeks max. You can take a week off or whatever, but if you're going to do it, Take four weeks to study because you know what? You're not going to remember what you studied in week one. If you take the test eight weeks or 12 weeks after you started that process, it just, I don't think it works that way. Mm-hmm. So my advice is get to it, make a plan, start four weeks later, take a test, take a week off, go party, start the process over, get through get it done. And then once you get that out of the way, then you have the and beyond Then they could be running concurrently, but I'll tell you, the people that got their tests out of the way as young folks, nowadays, people look at them like, wow, they got their shit together. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're perceived differently yeah, yeah, yeah. than the people that seem to slow roll it. Um, so the and beyond part, quite honestly, this is, this is um, I'll try to make this fast. There's two things. One is, and I actually have an entire blog post about it, do what you say you're going to do when you said you were going to do it. And there's a little bit more to that, but that's the gist of it. Show up, participate, say yes, especially when you're younger. It makes a difference. And then the other thing that I think that is good advice for people early in their career is try to get involved in as many things as you have the bandwidth to get involved with. That could be AIA. That could be ULI. That could be other projects in your office. That could be dedicating yourself to getting your license done. Show up, say yes, get involved. That's the best advice I can give somebody who's, say, within zero to 10 years out of school.
2: Yeah, uh, I think that's pretty sound advice. I would say when it talks about licensure, I think your goal should be, and I know they keep changing the exams, but it shouldn't take you more than a year. And that's pushing it to get all of it done. If you have five exams, and that's one pretty much every other month, which I think is fine, but you should push through it and get it done so that it's not Hanging over your head, because I feel like that's how some people feel about it. It's like, oh, it's just still out there. It's still out there. But if you just push through it and get done, then it's over with. And also, I agree that I learned a whole lot actually studying for my exams Mm -hmm. about things that I hadn't been learning in my office or from the projects I was working on. So that approaching that process, like you say, is an ability to learn more about what it is I actually do in my job. And Mm -hmm. even though I may not be doing it now, it's coming at some point in my future. And so I think that's a really good selling point you made there about doing that and getting it over with. So definitely get it done as soon as you can. The addition I will make to that is the older that you get, the less free time you're going to have. Yes. And that's with work, with personal life, with everything that happens. The older you get, the less free time you have. I know it may seem backwards (laughs) to you at the moment, but your life is only going to get busier, I promise. Yeah. And then as far as after that, yeah, I agree. Networking is really important, being responsible, being accountable and being involved in things in your office. Pay attention to things that are going on around you. The other thing I would say is early in your career, as much as humanly possible, get yourself on construction sites. I think that's a really important thing to help you understand all the facets of architecture and what it actually takes to get a building built, which then in turn, I think, has a useful impact on your ability to design things or the way that you design things and the way you think about the process of architecture. So, yep, same thing. Get through the exam. Be involved and get on job sites. Those would be my advice points. All right. There you go. We're killing it so far.
0: Feeling pretty good about it, about the show so far. Okay. The next question comes from Renee Brida, who actually happens to be my oldest sister. (laughs) So she's apparently creeping on my Instagram stories, but she asked a question. Normally I wouldn't include a question here for my sister, but she asked a question that I think a lot of people Well, I know a lot of people have asked it before because I've answered this question before. It's a reasonable question. It's not my sister pandering or anything like, who's your favorite sister? It wasn't that kind of question. So her question was, do you have to have certain innate skills to succeed as an architect or can you learn them? And you get to go first on this one.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's a bit of innate skill or maybe perspective that you have to have. But in reality, I think pretty much Everything that you need to learn or need to have, you can be taught for the most part. I think there are some things, maybe in the design aspect, that some of it's a little bit more innate, but again, like we've talked about before, not everybody's designers. And so in the practice of architecture, you can probably, in my opinion, learn everything that you need to learn. You don't have to be a great artist. You don't have to be savant with color combinations or anything crazy like that, or a math genius or anything. You can learn and be taught most of those things. I think it just takes maybe a, the right attitude, possibly, that may be what you have to have that's innate to be able to, to be an architect. But I think you can learn 95% of what you need. Okay, I want to elaborate on something you just said. It had to do with attitude, because I agree with that.
0: But at the same time, I kind of go, all right, well, well I'm assuming it's a positive attitude. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's have a can-do positive attitude about it. Well, obviously that's going to work for any path that you choose, but it seems like there are moments where like we have pretty good highs and we have pretty bad lows at times. Like I know a lot of people that really Mm -hmm. like the job gets to them in a way. And I think part of that is because it's so personal. I mean, a lot of this is actually, you know, I wonder if this could be an entire show, but I don't know how I would, I don't know, run it all the way through, but it's not so much true since I've come to a big firm. All the little firms that I've worked in the past where everybody primarily saw themselves as a designer in some capacity. I'm not saying that they all thought that that was the thing that they were best at, mm-hmm. but nobody thought that they weren't at least good at it. And as a result, I also had the attitude that most of those people believed that they were somewhat defined. Who they were was defined by them being an architect. mm mm-hmm. And so now I've gone to a bigger firm and I don't think this is unusual in, in bigger firms. I mean, it's just kind of on display more given that 80% of the people in my office Mm -hmm. do not view themselves as designers and they are okay with that. Like that Mm -hmm. is not like, they don't see that as a shortcoming at all. Yeah. And, and they shouldn't for the record, they shouldn't, but because they don't define themselves in that capacity, they also don't seem to define themselves by what they do as much as the people that I've met in my life that consider themselves designers. Because then as a result, those people seem to get a little bit more down the designer types mm-hmm. when the market's fluctuating or things are slowing down. Those folks seem to take it a lot harder and struggle with it more because of how they define themselves by what they do. Whereas the people that are just straight up awesome project architects or project managers, or either in the construction administration, they don't, seem to have this, that same kind of, I don't know, restriction that they haven't put that restriction on themselves. Mm. So they seem to roll with the punches a little bit better. Just my observation. I don't know if that's actually true. I wanted to interrupt and see if you had some kind of similar opinions or wildly different on that.
2: Um, No, I mean, I, I guess I'd probably agree. You know, I don't have the experience of being in the super large firm to know that there's that kind of difference, but I can agree with the smaller firm mentality of, I think you feel it more you feel more attached to it. Maybe that's the correct way to look at it is you feel more attached to the process and to everything else that's going on that you may not do in a large firm. So I think I agree with that. Well, the question I think is a good one about having
0: certain innate skills. And I do think that based on the role that you carve out for yourself, there are more innate skills that will benefit your ability to find success, not failure. Mm Mm-hmm. I think you can do any job in the field of architecture and be mediocre at it. And I don't mean that in a nasty,
2: hateful way. No, yeah, yeah. And I also think anybody can. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be in architecture and do a yeah. mediocre, middle-of-the-road, average job at whatever that is. Yeah, I agree.
0: I think that's a very realistic possibility. I have in the last 10 years or so really, I don't know if I'd say drill-down is the right way to look at it, but the things have become much more like, wow, this makes a bigger difference than I ever thought, had to do with the ability to communicate. And I've talked about that a lot. And I've said that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like you being a great designer, for example, that's awesome. There's a place for you. But if you can't galvanize your vision and get other people to understand it and say yes, and then Pied Piper everybody to the finish line of a building getting done, that skill is the communication part. That's the part that makes people go, I like working with those folks. So that's a skill that I, of all of them, you can learn just about everything but that ability to tell a story and be charming and get people to do what you want them to do or what you think should be done in a way that they don't take as you being bossy and dictatorial about it. Cause that's something we see in my own office. We have, we see people that are great at what they do and they're viewed as prickly. Mm -hmm. And then you've got other people that do all, almost all the exact same things and they're not seen as prickly. And it's just, when we're talking about what's below the equal, the summation line. Mm -hmm. Look, you can take classes on how to speak and how to manage and how to communicate. You can learn all these things. Sure. The only thing I think that you can go from the thing that takes you from good or really good to great, there's some innate talent that's involved with some of this, but I don't think you need to hang your hat on whether you have quote-unquote talent in that area to be successful in this field.
2: Mm -hmm. I I guess I could kind of agree with that. Grant, I think you can be Really successful and not be a great communicator, but it depends where you're at. You go out on your own, you cannot be successful if you're not a good communicator and you live in a big firm and work in a big place like that, it'll put a ceiling on you, but you can still probably be really successful depends I think On where you're at again, what you're trying to do' cause like you mean the role the role you have in the office
3: yeah,
0: the role you have yeah, because not all roles require you to be a great communicator
2: and maybe the role that you can even aspire to yeah at some point if you're not a great communicator you're not going to get to be a principal architect probably of the firm or an owner or anything like that because those people do end up at some point they've got to talk to all the people employees and all the clients and that kind of stuff and it becomes paramount that you are able to communicate well
0: yeah well there you go more from life of an architect in just a moment I'm sitting down with Eric Sposito, Director of Architectural Louvers, Screens, Facade Solutions, and Safety Venting Business Units. Eric joined Construction Specialties in 2007 and currently serves as the Business Unit Director for Construction Specialties Exterior Facade-Related Products. These include Architectural Louvers, Screens, Facade Solutions, and Safety Venting, and Eric's teams focus on solving complex challenges within the exterior architectural facade market using innovative engineered solutions. That is an impressive intro. Hi, Eric. Happy to have you on the show today.
4: Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time.
0: Well, look, I know that we have a limited amount of time together today, so I have a couple questions I want to go through so that you can help us understand mastering movement when it comes to your area expertise. So, Construction Specialties is highly centered on an educational concept called Mastering Movement. And I know based on the intro that I just read about you, that you are extremely passionate about custom louver and facade solutions. How can these items provide value to both the contractors and the client?
4: Sure. From a Mastering Movement standpoint, a louver is the perfect movement tool. By definition, a louver is what you think of a large vent on the outside of a building connected to HVAC equipment or mechanical equipment for intake and exhaust applications. So it is always moving air. Now, these aren't just the straight blades, flat blades of the 1980s or 90s. They've evolved over the last decade or two into complex shapes. They are chevron blades with hooks and gutters and very tight spacing. The, the spacing of louver blades can be one inch on center. It's a very dense system of extruded aluminum. Mm-hmm. But they are designed to stop wind-driven rain, and they have a very tough task of allowing air in and out of the building while stopping an immense amount of rain. So that's quite a combination.
0: Yeah, highly engineered, I'm sure.
4: Back to education and mastering movement of how louvers contribute to building performance. First of all, architects don't always like the aesthetic of a louver, the visual lines of a louver on a building, but they're necessary. Louvers are a necessary product on the facade of a building.
0: Sure, I get that.
4: So what do we do? How do we make them disappear? Mm -hmm. There are options. You can make a louver disappear from a facade while it still functions. Perforated aluminum sheet is a great solution. When you're at ground level and standing a distance back from perforated sheet, it appears to be a flat panel. You can't really see through it or see that it's perforated even. So you can put that on the outside of a louver to help hide it. Sure. Keeping it all within an assembled frame, but also tested. It's key to have it tested as a combination system in a single frame. But that is a great solution to help hide a louver and still function on the building.
0: Yeah, I'm sure architects love that as a solution because you're right. You know, a lot of times the louver... They can get kind of big, and they kind of take on a prominent role, and sometimes it's not really the look we're going for.
4: Yeah, there's two different directions you can go. You can accent the louver, make it prominent, make it an architectural feature, or you could try to make it disappear. And both of those are available. You want it to be a feature piece, an accent on a building. Longer bold blades can be added to it. Color can be introduced. Even LED lights underneath the louver blade to illuminate the system at nighttime, signage often gets attached to louvers, so they can be a prominent architectural feature or they can be hidden by perforated sheet. That perforated sheet can come in different hole sizes, patterns, but that'll help hide the louver. So it can really go in two different directions.
0: Yeah, I like the kind of flexibility that you're able to get. We talk in our office quite often, if we're trying to make something go away and we can't do it, we don't try to get it close. We're like, okay, well now we need to articulate this thing and it needs to have a prominent role because... It was intentionally put here
4: right and the important thing there is as you customize these louvers as you either make them disappear or become a huge feature uh, they need to be a tested system it needs to be tested in that unique application if you put a grill on the front of it to hide it it needs to be tested because you never know how that air and water performance could adversely impact the building and the mechanical equipment and that back to the intake and exhaust the the primary function of the louver it still needs to function at the end of the day
0: sure Eric, as we're coming to a close, can you tell me what you believe helps to master the movement within a building? What's the takeaway you want everyone to have today?
4: Yeah, for me, it's the collaboration and the partnership between all stakeholders on a project. It's the mechanical engineer, the architect, but then it goes to the contractor and the subcontractor, the installer. They all have to be on the same page back to louvers and the movement of air. They need to be collaborating in both the attachments, the installation, but the design, the testing, and the unique customization that can happen with a louver that, that's great, that can either hide it or accent it, but it all needs to work in unison. It all needs to be a tested system.
0: Visit masteringmovement.net for more information and to learn more about how Construction Specialties has been creating inspired solutions for a more intelligently built environment since 1948. Hey, Eric, I want to thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the insight that you've shared with us on the Mastering Movement conversation that we're running with Construction Specialties.
4: Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Yeah, take care. The next question comes from the Dutch Woodworker. Also, easy name. Appreciate that. So this one is, do you have some pointers for architects who are transitioning to management roles. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I've read a bu- I've read so many books in the last year and a half on management styles, and they either make complete obvious duh kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Or I go, I must not understand it because that seems dumb. I don't know how to describe it because I don't know what I'm doing, which is hence why I'm reading all these books. I
2: was going to say, and after reading all those books, you're still struggling with the concept. Yeah. Well, there's or the application of, I guess, maybe in certain instances, because it, they don't tell you like step one, do this. They tell you like,
3: yeah,
0: things that I feel like you should already know. Like other people's opinions matter. You should get <laughs> let people get involved, have a have a say. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of an innate things that. Like, for example, this is something that, like, I hate meetings. I hate them. I don't say that because I don't think meetings have value. Mm -hmm. Most meetings have too many people in the room. And it turns into everybody's having a chance to speak or prove that they should be in the room. And nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And that drives me so crazy. I mean, I leave the room and I go, what a colleague. I mean, I'm I'm almost pissed. Like, what a waste of time. Like, nothing's going to happen. And so that asking the question, why? you get into a room and you say, all right, we should do this. And you go, why is it going to change behavior? Is it going to motivate a change? Is it going to do something that allows us to pivot from where we're at to do something else? And I'm more of opinion that I don't care if it's going to be wrong, but if we know that what we're doing is not right, anything's better. Almost anything's better. Mm -hmm. And I also don't like decisions made by committee because what it does, it's like the most protective, safe way to make
2: it it's a really watered down choice for sure yes like there's
0: you know what you've limited your exposure because now if something's bad everyone took a piece of that pie so everyone's got a little bit of protection to them but it is it's so watered down that there's no chance for greatness you don't have like the power of this singular vision of somebody saying you know what Andrew, you're in charge of this. Go get whatever you need. Go get whatever people that you need to help inform you and you solve it. And then you say, this is the solution. And that's what we're going to do. We put you in this place to make this decision. That's your job. Yeah. Not you go do all the work and then come before the Kings and Queens. You tell us your idea. Then we go, mm, I don't think so. Even though we've done none of the work, we've done none of the, I just don't.
2: <laughs> yeah. And everybody adds their little two cents yes. to it or their one cent. And then, but, or actually let's rephrase it. Everybody adds their drops of water and buckets of water to it, and then it becomes very watered down. Yes. Yeah.
0: So here's the challenge, because I, I literally am going through this right now. It's really.
2: I was like, where's the answer? Well. Where's the answer to the question? Is it coming? It's coming. Okay. Okay.
0: So I'm going through this challenge myself because I've always been in a position, because being in small firms, you kind of say, this is what makes sense to me. And then you go do that. There's not this process and this management bureaucratic Step one, two, three, four, you have to go through to get permission to do whatever you're doing. This is a wildly different kind of process for me. Mm-hmm. I think that what happens is if you come in with the opinion of too many voices, too many opinions watered down, there's no chance for greatness. If that's kind of the position you take, and I'm here going on record saying that is the position that I have, it's really hard to build consensus if you do not let people have some kind of part of the process, like they need to have some kind of ownership in order to have buy-in. Cause most of us, and I'll tell you, I'm not one of the four owners of my firm. So ultimately they can do whatever they want. I can come in and go, here's all this perfect factual information. It equals a hundred. Like it's perfect. And they go, I don't think so. That's their right. They have the ability to do that because they've earned that right to be able to say they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's when the communicator part gets into it. Like how do you present the case to where you don't put people in a corner and you say, here's the data, here's the conclusions I'm reaching. Is there anything that I can support to tell you to help you come to hopefully a similar conclusion? So there's a talking process that goes through this. But when you're transitioning into management, the pointers that I get is listen to the people that you're supposed to be managing. So when we do these mentor mentee check ins, first question I ask, I go, How are you doing? (laughs) And the second question is, Is there something that you want to be doing that you're not doing? Is there anything that I can do to help you get the opportunities that you're looking for? Because my experience, What I've learned over the last couple of years is most people are happy if they feel like somebody cares about them and is trying to help them get to where they want to be or feel like they need to be. And you have a job as a manager to identify if somebody has the ability to do what you're asking them to do. Because if you ask a fish to climb a tree and it fails, that's not on the fish. That's on you. So part of it is just paying attention and making sure that you can help people understand where they think they should be to find success. And that you try to put people in a place where you think that they have
2: the ability to find success. Win-win. I'm going to come at it from a little bit different angle. Because I think it depends. We don't have the context of how you're transitioning to management or what the scope of that is. And I'm just going to come at it from the standpoint of actually what I learned as I transitioned from employee to owner to employer. Having to manage employees. And this is really based on my level of responsibility for things or what I was responsible for, I think at some point you have to start being able to let go of certain things and choose which parts of the process are most important you to maintain. What I mean by that is at some point I had to give up on saying, well, I'm going to do all these different drawings or I'm going to do this design, everything that comes in the office or any sort of myriad of those kinds of decisions or processes. And I had to say, okay, I've got to let that go. Because in order for me to be effective manager, I can't still try to do everything that I was right. doing before sure. as a non-manager. Mm-hmm. I've got to give some of that up. And I'm giving that up to the people that I'm managing. And so there's a shift in being a like an onlooker to those things as opposed to a, an overly involved doer.
0: Yeah, you're talking about micromanaging versus letting your people do what you've tasked them with doing, getting out of their way.
2: Yeah, and that's a tough transition for some, right? You've got to be able to say... yeah. I mean, especially if you were used to running all my projects and I'm doing everything, I'm doing design, I'm doing production, I'm doing specs, I'm doing this, I'm doing all of those things. When you switch to management, you're overseeing people that are doing those things and you've got to let that go and you can't get into the weeds on that. You have to trust the people that you're managing and really realize that your management goal as a manager is to try to make somebody that's replacing what you were doing. Sure. And to try to instruct them to do it maybe the way that you want it done or you like it done or that you think it should be done. But really, you're trying to supplant yourself in the position that you just left that was non-managerial. Yeah. And being able to do that, I think, and understand that that's what's happening is a really important thing. And for some people, that's a hard hump to get over, to realize that I can't do the same things I'm doing
1: anymore.
0: Well, that's not just, first off, I I, I agree, but that's not just, that is management transition thinking to be certain, but that's ownership transition thinking because your job is to make more use. <laughs> Like there are people in my office, I go, you're great, but what I need you to do is I need you to make other people great. The higher up the, the layer cake you move, the more your responsibility is to make more versions of the layer you just left. Yeah. You want to go to, from layer five to layer six? You need to like figure out who's going to like stopgap, who's going to become the new you at layer five.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Otherwise you're creating vacuums and, and you end up just taking on more responsibility, but not giving up any of the workload. And which then leads you to a bad place. so, (laughs) And doing poor work or underperforming. Typically.
2: All right. So that's my advice. All right. I think it's good advice.
0: Okay. The next question comes from literally just David. Oh,
2: that was good. Because I hadn't gotten that one. I was like, wait, what?
0: Okay. (laughs) Literally just David. (laughs) So David's question is, with design build gaining popularity, should there be a degree that's somewhere between construction management and architecture and interestingly enough this falls to the professor of the group
2: (laughs) yeah i will say and i'm not sure i mean i have questions about design build gaining popularity i'm not really sure where we're talking about like market sector wise but there are actually right now i mean there are a few schools that they may not have a degree specifically in it but they're heavily handed and do a lot of that work of course the first one that comes to mind is auburn in their rural studio program. Sure. That's been design built for I mean it's the cornerstone of design build education in architecture. But also the University of Kansas, they have a really strong program in design build in their graduate program. They actually built an addition to their architectural school, which is like not like a little rural studio project, but like Yeah, I got you. They they did it. Big commercial project that they built that was an addition to a building on campus. I mean wild. And then other schools, I think Virginia Tech and Yale and Parsons and somewhere in Utah, There are some schools that have a focus on that. So I, mean, I think if they're out there, they're just not really abundant. But there are schools, if you look into it, you can find some schools that have a focus on that and you can, you can spend your time doing that work. Now, of course, the way that they manage those things and do it is a little bit different. Sometimes they're a little bit more focused just on that connection to construction and not so much running a design build business. But. You can still find some schools out there that do that. So they're out there, they're around, they exist. You just have to do some looking, I guess, investigate that and you can find it.
0: Well, I'm glad that you took that question first because when I read it, my initial reaction was, no, we don't need that. (laughs) Like we don't need a degree that's got one foot in two different places. Yeah. I think that you could probably pursue either of those degrees and support with electives and additional coursework enough to make you viable and to give you a foundational knowledge on how to do the thing that is not your focus. That is my super generic, but I think correct take on that question.
2: (laughs) All right. I would argue you probably don't have enough time in electives to do that, but.
0: Well, I'm not. No, no. I said additional.
2: Oh, okay.
0: We just got through talking about how we got. I got like a semester's more worth of classes. I mean, I got like 30 hours more than my degree required. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. we've talked about this a lot like how do you fill up your electives with ways that are valuable but there might be sometimes when you go above and beyond like you might take a class that doesn't check the box or you've taken two classes and only one box needs to be checked still valuable to take it mm-hmm. I got you I loved the pottery class I took loved it I go, man, I shouldn't have taken that class. I could there's so many other things that probably would I mean it fed my soul. There's not many classes I look yeah, back on sure. my time in college that were outside of my degree path that I go, man, I, that was a fun class, so on that case, I go, I'm glad I took it,
2: yeah, but maybe I could have used it more. A management class might have been better at this point in your life, yes, yes, <laughs> it probably would have been, so yeah, anyway,
0: okay, next question comes from patch dot architecture and So this was a very specific question. It was. I'm going to give it a generic answer because I think that the intent of the question without the specificity is what is better to address. Mm, Right. Okay. So their question was, should I push back on owners who want to VE or value engineer exterior insulation or fluid weather resistant board instead of expensive finishes? Well, of course you should. Yes, you should. Of course you should push back on that. That's your job to yes. push back on that. But I even wrote it in my notes here. So I have a three times rule. First off, we are service providers. We're being paid to do something. And the first thing you do is not just say yes to whatever someone asks you to do, because your job is to understand the big picture and to help get them where they need to be. And sometimes that means tell them, hey, actions have consequences and this is a bad decision or it's a poor decision based on these other decisions. Like they don't understand, like you can't blame them for not like, Mm -hmm. they just don't understand. So your job is to tell them and you say one plus one is two. And they go, "Mm, I think it's 11. And you're like, okay, no, let's work through this. So I'll go through that process. And I have a three times rule. So if I say, Hey, I think that maybe this is not the right decision. And they disagree with me after the third time I move on. It's their decision. It's what they want. I've done what I feel like I needed to do above and beyond, Mm -hmm. but yeah. You should always push back on somebody doing something that you think maybe is not in their long-term best interest. So, I also have that, I've said this before, I also have where I get to play one card. And I tell almost all my residential clients, I've almost never had to use it. But it's uh, like there's going to be one time when they don't want to do something, I say, look, there's going to be one time I go, I'm playing the card. And when I say, you have to do this, you're going to do it. Shockingly, they all agree to that.
2: Yeah, you've got to get that agreement up front. You can't do it now that there's a now that there's an yeah. issue. You gotta do it. And it's
0: never in writing. It's either. <laughs> yeah, it's not in my contract. Yeah. yeah. We kinda of talk about it and I'll say, look, there's just something and maybe it's I'm just doing a bad job explaining what it means or the impact or the ramifications, or we're just not getting it now. But there's gonna be that time when I'm gonna push back that fourth time and that's when I play that card. I can say probably in almost thirty years. I think I've done it like once or twice. It doesn't happen very often. Just the idea of doing it seems to have the the effect that I'm typically looking for.
2: My response was trying to get into this specific situation. So uh, I'll pull back on that and and agree that, yeah, you should, I don't know if pushback is the right word, but I think you should probably try to persuade them. And again, give them the consequences of, for example, if I'm taking off exterior insulation, whether I'm in the hot or the cold, at some point that's going to affect my energy consumption of the house. I can tell you right now, my house that was built in the seventies with these 110, 112 degree days, my air conditioner is struggling. Yeah. I probably have got R1 or something in my in my walls if I've got anything. And I definitely don't have an you know, envelope wrap. But I think coming at it from the way uh, of trying to help them understand why it's not the best of ideas and what the future consequences would be. So in that example, you know, energy costs are only going to get higher. So you're just going to set yourself up for increasing costs in the house more down the line. I mean, if it was at a commercial building, right, there's code issues involved with how much insulation I have to have. I think that you're right in that sense of trying to persuade them some, but at some point, I think you have to stay away from getting adversarial about it and being angry if they're pushing back on you. But at a certain point, it's their call because they're the client and you can just be like, well, okay, I warned you. <laughs> in the commercial context, typically I would try to get letter in writing saying, I advise against this and you guys are doing it anyway, but that's some CYA stuff on my own. So they can't come back later and go, my energy bill is $500 a month. You never said that. And you can be like, I told you. And we had discussions about it. Yeah. But yeah. So there you go. I think, yes, you should. You just got to be careful with how you do it.
0: Again, we seem to be communication coming up again. Yeah. <laughs> so. sure. Okay. Next question comes from Austin. You know what? I typed this up. I can't tell if I, I'm pretty sure that's an L. Austin underscore L
2: underscore M. Oh, if it's a one. I or don't know. A, yeah, an it's a, it's a, or what? It's yeah, a vertical sh- line. <laughs> line. Yeah. Austin, I am. Yeah, I am. No, I am. I, I know. Who knows? Maybe you LM. Know,
0: I could look it up, but you know what? There'll also be a link. If you want to go figure out what it is for yourself, I'll, there'll be a link.
2: So, And Austin, we apologize.
0: Yes. Well, we got the first part right and the last part right. Sure. So, Austin's question is Is an architecture license? Only good in the state the tests were passed in. Andrew, you want to take this one?
2: This is an easy question. The answer is yes.
0: Yes. There you go. Yes.
2: In the beginning. Yes. Now, you can use that license to then get reciprocal licenses in other states. Yes. That's a process that takes place through typically through NCARB or even through the states themselves. But in the beginning, when you first pass an exam, you're only licensed to practice architecture in that state. That is the only state because all licensure is handled by the states individually, the jurisdictions and states individually. And so if it's Vermont, then that's Vermont. And you typically have to pay money and get a reciprocal license in other states. And there's rules about that as well. But yes, only good where you pass the test.
0: Yeah. I'm currently licensed in two states. I took the test in Texas, and that's where I got my license. And through NCARB, I got reciprocity, and I have a Wyoming license. Yeah. So. Yeah, so there you go. I don't feel like I need to say any more to that. That was like a, let's get this person their answer and move on. So there you go.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty easy one.
0: Okay, the next one comes from my buddy Lane, who's actually in my firm. And normally when I post pictures of cocktails online, there's a chance that he's in the room when when I'm drinking that cocktail because <laughs> he lives almost across the street from me. His account's WL Acrey. And his question is, if the architecture field had one known cocktail associated with it, what is it? And he said, and give the recipe. I'm not going to read the recipe as part of this podcast, but I might put a recipe in the show notes.
2: Well, I'm interested to hear your response to this question.
0: I don't have a good response to this question. So I wanted to do it because I get a lot of comments from people saying, ooh, because I used to post recipes for cocktails. And I've been going back more to the classics. I feel like I go, I need to put more of a foundational system in place. So I've been going back and doing a lot of these classics, understanding it. But Lane and I used to get in these arguments early on. He is a brown liquor whiskey guy. Yeah. He's a pour bourbon or whiskey into a glass made for drinking bourbon or whiskey. There's no water. There is no ice. There's nothing. And then he drinks it. Just neat. Yeah. And I kind of go. That's just liquor. That's not a cocktail. First off, that's just in my mind. I go. A cocktail needs. This is true. Needs to have. There's like four ingredients, and one's a spirit. And there's rules. There's rules for what makes a cocktail a cocktail. And so, the other thing that I do is I tend to drink different spirits based on the temperature outside. Because mm-hmm. I don't drink a lot of like. I like an old fashioned. Love a good old fashioned. When it's 108 billion degrees outside, I don't really want to drink an old-fashioned. I want to drink something that gets served with a lot of ice, like it's cold. That's what yeah. I want. Yeah. And so, so my cocktail that I choose tends to be based on the temperature outside. Now, since he asked uh, the parameters that's associated with the field, I kind of go, well, it shouldn't be something fussy, at least not in my mind. It has to be a classic. It has to be a standard. And I started thinking, well, does that mean like a martini, something classic and execution is, it's all about the execution. Cause that's where my brain goes. Yeah, I wouldn't choose something like a Pim's cup or something. Yeah. Despite the fact that they're good, but because it's got a garden on top of it, you know? And it's like, I, I don't, I, I like that, but I go, eh, if I'm going to define the architecture profession as a thing, I started going it's going to end up being like an old fashioned or a Manhattan or a Negroni or a martini. It's going to fall into one of those, mm-hmm. like a classic gin and tonic, like something that you can screw it up because execution matters, but it's simple. It's kind of like losing weight. It's easy to know what you're supposed to do to lose weights easy. Doing it is not as easy. And that's what I think like the classic. Yeah. That's my unfulfilling answer, but that's kind of it. Those are probably where I would go. Because it's got to be classic. It's got to be like one for the time. You want to learn how to make five cocktails? I just rattled off like four that probably everybody should know how to make.
2: Yeah. So when I read the question, I sat down and I was thinking, well, when I go out with architects and we go have drinks, what are the most common drinks that get ordered? Beer. (laughs) If this is a known cocktail associated with it. And for me, it was comes down into two categories of whiskey bourbon or gin vodka, usually. Those are the liquors that come up more often than not and for me and i don't know if it's just because of me being a gin drinker myself but most of the time it's a gin and tonic but some kind of gin drink so if i was going to say that there is a known cocktail associated with the profession i would say it's gin and tonic Mm. in my opinion because i bet 75 to 80 percent of the time i go out drinking people that's what they're drinking or it's whiskey or bourbon but it's straight to me that doesn't really count
0: yeah but the gin and tonic is chosen because it's really hard to get a like a terrible one yeah. like old fashions not hard to make but man they can be terrible yeah i am if i make it it's gonna be amazing like because one i know how i like it number one so that's not an ego thing that's a i make it the way i like it there's evidence to support that i make a good one but you just don't know what you're gonna get look when i went up to wisconsin if i got an old-fashioned it would be made with brandy mm-hmm. and you know and not whiskey and it's gonna have muddled maraschino cherries and oranges. Yeah, cherries. It. I, it's yeah, just, lots
2: of cherries in it. Yeah.
0: I go, that's a tough one because you just know it. You don't know what you're going to get. Moscow Mule. In fact, I had two of those yesterday <laughs> while I was floating in the pool. And it was right. It felt right to me. But I kind of go, uh, eh, this why I don't know that I love my answer. I'd probably say a martini. Not because I know a lot of architects that drink them. But it's got the coolest glass. The presentation's always really nicely done there's execution and how you make it, but there's still a lot of varieties on how you make it. It still comes down to being just liquor for the most part, but I think I'd go with a martini. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I don't like martinis. I don't drink them.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's why I didn't pick something like that either. Cause I don't like martinis. They're just not my thing, even though I'm a gin guy, but I was just based on it off of my years of being at conventions and being at places and having drinks with architects all the time that, The majority of them that I know, that's what they're drinking.
0: Okay, this is what we're going to do. To get a real answer for Lane, because he's going to call me out when he hears this (laughs) non-answer that I've given. Yeah. We should make this, it's similar to the question we're asking today. I think we should do like a deserted island. Like you could have two cocktails. Yeah. You can have as many as you want. (laughs) You know, it's the magic box. Yeah. Or maybe it's just one, but we got to figure out like, If you're going to have one cocktail, what cocktail is it going to be? Like, what cocktail could you make your way through the rest of your life drinking? Sure. Which is a little bit of a loaded question, because if you're on a deserted island, that suggests that it's warm. So, something refreshing would probably be pretty good. And you would think, man, maybe I need some high calorie, because, you know, I got to go out and catch my fish.
2: (laughs) Bloody Marys with a rib on top. That's what I want for a cocktail.
0: (laughs) Yeah, brisket sandwich on top of my Bloody Mary. Yeah. Okay, so we got... We're going to try to get through a couple more questions. This one comes from Horry.Karrison H-O-R-E-Y dot and their question is how awful is writing specs? It seems like a left brain task for a right brain job. You know this question kind of hurts
2: my soul a little bit. I mean I don't know it was a weird question to me in a way because
0: I don't think it's weird but I think it's set up, it's
2: leading the jury a little bit. Yeah, the phrasing of it to me is a little bit weird. It already seems like that they have an answer for the question that they're asking, you know? I actually, pretty much, I enjoy writing specs. I used to write them for all my projects in the office. That was still one of the things that I had to do because there wasn't anybody who replaced me. I enjoy them because they are exactly that, very specific, very detail-oriented. Yes, there's some tedium to the fact that I'm doing all this typing, but the act of really dialing down into the things that are going to be in the project that I'm creating and getting specific about exactly how those things are and what they are and what they're made of was actually very interesting to me. I enjoyed doing that and it's, I'm not going to go out and say it's fulfilling, but like I wouldn't want to do it all day long. It's a job. I don't know. I might. But again, to me, it's, it was very almost cathartic in a way that if I got to sit down and just do that there, cause there's an end to that task and it's very straightforward. So to me, they were never, well, at times they were awful, but overall, it wasn't this terrible thing that I hated doing all the time. Specs were okay for me.
0: Okay. So when I was in a small firm, we did short form specs and I didn't hate them, but I didn't love them, but I saw their value. So it was just, it was just check the box. It was part of the process. In a bigger firm, we have gone between having a full-time specifications writer and then using a third party group outside of the office. Mm-hmm. And it's a big deal. Like it's important what they do and it has a lot of value. And and as a result, it's a certain type of person that we want in that role. And so in our office, there's not a single person that would ever phrase that question. How awful is it? Mm -hmm. Because none of the people that do it think it's awful.
1: Yeah,
0: That's the short version of it. We've talked a little bit on today's episode that there's a place for just about everybody to do one of a handful of different things that's perfectly suited for what you like and what you're good at. If you think of yourself like, I'm some superstar designer, yeah, you probably are not the spec guy. That's probably not something that you have an interest in doing. But I probably have more people in my office that are suited to writing specifications than I have for designing the exterior of some 40-story office building. So it's not viewed as this terrible, awful thing, I think, generally speaking, out there. The people that do it, I don't think they think it's awful. I think they're like, "This is cool. I love it. It's awesome. It provides a lot of value." If you're that person that thinks it's awful, you're just not that person. That's fine. The person writing specs, like their question submitted is, "How awful is it to do renderings for four days only to change the Parquet wood pattern on the?" You know, they could probably write a similar question slanted towards the designers. So, all right. Well, there you go. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce this last one. I'm just gonna spell it. And it's A B O R. A Borges. G. Yeah, but I do you know do you think that's how you pronounce that?
2: I know that's how you pronounce it.
0: Okay, so say it again.
2: A Borges And then there's a G.
0: Okay, yeah. There's zero chance I would have got do you know this person? Yes. Okay, well there you go. That's cheating. <laughs> Okay, so this question is, how do you see AI affecting the discipline of architecture in the near future? I'm trying to decide if near is a key word in this question.
2: See, to me, discipline is a key word in this question.
0: Interesting. I blew right past that. Yeah. So, to be honest with you, I don't know. And I'd say in my office, I'm probably as far out in front of this as anybody in my office. Mm -hmm. You know, probably image generator platforms I mess around with on a weekly basis. I use ChatGPT for a lot of things. I actually went to a, a lecture on this that the Dallas Regional Council had last week. They had somebody from Google come out and talk about it. They had a, a guy who was in charge of world integration, you know, AI integration for AT. I mean, like, these are heavy, heavy hitters on this panel. Mm-hmm. And they tried to keep the conversation pretty high level because they, they undoubtedly have the ability to, to talk about, like, the guy from Google's like, uh, we're, we've been doing this for 15 years. Yeah, it's not
2: new. It's just new to the public. It's new to the public.
0: And one of the guys started off saying, hey, how many of you like used a map app to figure out how to get here? That's AI. Mm -hmm. We've been using this stuff already. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that they said, this is probably not really asking a question, but it really has to do with in what ways can you imagine using this tool to do something for you? And one of the guys said, just figure out what you don't like about your job and then get AI to do it for you. Which I've never thought about it in that regard. I've always yeah. thought about it as like, what cool stuff can I get this thing to do? It's like, well, you know, like oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. look for how do I write these words, do this image. And, you know, like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And they looked at it and said, what are the things you don't like? Automate it. Get AI to automate this for you. And I went, wow, that seems so obvious. And yet I had never thought about looking at it in that capacity. So things like staffing. So I'm messing around with ChatGPT to figure out how I can streamline the staffing project for that hundred people in my office and how they get distributed and workflow and all that. Just, you know what? No one asked me to do that. I'm just, can I do it? Can I leverage all this computing power to do something for me in that regard? So I can't really answer how I think it's going to impact other than I know that it is. I don't think it's going to replace jobs. I think it's going to move people around. I think it's a tool that we have to figure out how to use and how to harness its power to do what we do better more effectively that's what i think how it's going to impact us but i think how we use it today is going to be different 6 months the guy from 18t was giving a compliment to the guy from google and he was like you know what google's doing a really really good job with this right now because they're going really slow and he goes right now they're moving at the pace of like coal fed steam locomotive and he goes but in not that much longer it's going to be like a bullet train and If you're not messing with it now, you can still run alongside the train and jump on. But if you don't get into this and start trying to figure out and learn it and start to use it as a tool, it's going to be going so fast that it's going to be hard for some people to
2: catch up and jump aboard.
1: Mm, That's interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For me, the question and knowing, I guess what I know, maybe where this is coming from, but the question I would ask you in regard to practice. It sounds like in your firm of 100 that you and maybe just a handful of other people are even doing anything with it at all, and that it's not even part of the office workflow or anything like that at the moment. Is it being used in any way broadly in your firm at
1: the moment?
0: Not in a structured capacity. We have some people that are that are using it, but they're using it for their own purposes, for their own explorations. Mm-hmm. For example, we had a guy who gave a presentation. We have this... I've mentioned before, we have the Seven Minutes in Heaven Mm -hmm, lecture series, I guess we do. Yeah. And this guy had this amazing story about setting up this charity in Africa to help these kids that huff glue all day long because they don't have parents. They live on the streets and they huff glue because it curbs appetite and helps them not freeze to death as they sleep under cardboard boxes in the road. I mean, it's crazy. And he went over there to- Mm -hmm. And they set this whole thing up. Anyway, when he went to go get his pictures to help build this presentation, a lot of them were portrait and he wanted landscape just to help the aesthetics of his layout. Sure. And so he just ended up, he used Adobe in this case to expand his photos, Spand to pictures. change and fill in the data that was missing or not a part of it. He didn't need to do that. But he did, and he did it because it was a learning process. It was as Mm -hmm. much to figure out how do I do it and can I get it to work and will it fulfill some objective that I've set for myself that nobody else has put upon me Mm -hmm. to do it just because I can. Mm -hmm. It's being used in that regard. I've used it to streamline, like I'm trying to figure out a weighted employee average. You know, we did our employee evaluation episode a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So I took a bunch of that information to figure out how to develop weighted, like weighted values for some of the categories. And I was like, instead of me trying to f- figure out this algorithm on how I can yeah. take these 70 things and break them down into percentage of a whole, I'll just let open AI take care of that for me. And then I evaluate and go, no, less of this, more of that. And I can still tweak it to get it where I want it to be, but I can let that software get me 85% of the way there. Yeah. We actually did just set up a group whose whole purpose is to figure out how we can leverage AI in our workflow in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Literally that kicked off last week.
1: Yeah.
2: So I think because this person is a colleague of mine, a professor, and that's a part of what I know that he's maybe getting at or wanting to understand a little bit. And For me, I think that at the moment, there's this fascination with the fact that it seems like it's just going to take away all these jobs and do all these things. And I don't really think that's the case. I think it's going to modify workflow for sure and change the way that things are done. The instance of you saying, what is the thing that you hate about doing your job that you would have AI replace? And part of me says right off the bat. And some of the things I've seen is having AI application set up and do all of your construction documents, arrange them on the sheets and get all that, do all that stuff for you because you don't have to do it. And so that again could manage our workflow. I don't think it's going to make anybody lose a job because somebody still has to create the content, but having it get arranged in a way that makes sense and make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, someone has to manage that process.
2: And so things like that to be able to do. But even still, I think at this point, I think the fallacy is that we're not there yet. And these things aren't there yet to do it with the level of accuracy and correctness that's required to do it. It's funny, I was I was having a conversation with ChatGPT just yesterday, getting it to tell me how everything it does is false. Not everything, but that. It's not 100% factual because if you ask Chat GPT to say, how do you work? How does Chat work? It'll sort of lay it out and you go explain that more. And I was like, so because of this, you can give me back false information. And it says, yes, certainly. <laughs> and so you can make up books that don't exist and articles that don't exist. And it's like, yes, because all we're doing is a character language. Cause I just found out recently that in reality, Chat GPT works a lot like mid journey. Mm -hmm. In a sense of it's just combing the internet for characters instead of pixels Mm -hmm. or words instead of pixels. And so it's just bringing back a combination of things that seem to make sense. It's just that because of the computing power, it can do it so fast that it seems like it's having a conversation with you. And it seems like everything it's giving you is factual. I guess last spring, I was trying to get some bibliographies. Maybe that was going to use for courses in the semester. And I'd say, give me a bibliography with APA style and links to any articles. It would generate me tons of those things, but none of the links were real. Hmm. None of the articles had ever been written. Yeah. The author was somebody that worked in the field and the title could have been something, but it was giving me arch daily links, architizer links to websites and pages that don't exist. Hmm. And then you'd Google search for that stuff and it doesn't exist. So it's just pulling together information in that way. And that's for things like that. There are other things that it it can create code and things like that. And I even ask about that, creating code, and it still says, yes, that their code may not work all the time, and you may need to double check it. There are certain things where it can be factual, but when you're asking for other things, you may not be getting actual true facts, Sure, which I think is interesting. But I think that's the point of where everything is right now, is it's not the accuracy of what would be required for our profession is not there. And it can't generate those kind of things that we really need in our line of work to be able to have things insured and do all that kind of stuff. I think we're a long, long way away from those kind of things. I agree. And so right now, the only thing that I could see that it could possibly replace, and even still, I think not on a global scale, meaning everyone, but like rendering visualization, people and things in that mid range. I think the people that are still at the top of that game are going to be able to stay But the people that are on Fiverr or something like that, where they're going to render you something for 50 bucks a piece, that's probably going to go away because I could be able to get AI to do it in a heartbeat. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, we're still a ways away. I mean, they talk about it being able to generate 3D models, but they're not going to be 3D models anybody can use. So they're not going to be in a way that's usable by any other software platform, anything like that. So. I agree. I think it's going to change in the near future the way that we do our workflow, but I don't think they're going to be as drastic as it seems right now because it's also brand new to the public and everybody's flipping out about. it. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, we can make that entire episode, but we're not going to. So let's get to what we have as the last question. Hmm. Okie doke. Because we're in it pretty far so far. So here we go. And I'm going to read it. And you're supposed to answer this question first. Yeah. I should answer it because my answer is very short. Well, you can do it then. You can go first. That's fine. All right, here we go. This is from Woody Yeller. And Woody's question is, have either you or Bob had a building that you put a lot of work into be taken down? No. I haven't even had a building that I put like no effort into be taken down. That's funny. Hasn't happened. Now I had retail spaces. I had like stores I did when I got out of college, like those those are gone. Mm-hmm. but that didn't move the needle for me. So when I think about like a house or building that I've designed, has it been torn down? No, that hasn't happened.
2: Not yet. Yeah. I've only had one and I'm not saying I put a lot of time into it or anything, but we did do a renovation of a project in this old existing building. And then I bet not eight years or so after we did all that, the building got torn down. And now it's like a gas station or something like it's some weird thing that they just completely tore it down and turned into something else. But other than that, I haven't had anything either that's ever been demolished that I've actually done from the ground up. Like you say, at least not yet. Hopefully that won't be the case, but I'm sure at some point that'll happen, right?
0: Sure. I will tell you that I worked, I was not there for this. I just know that it happened from people who were there, that one of the guys that I worked with, he'd worked on this house for a long time, loved it. It got built and like a year later it was sold and he wept. Because it was sold to somebody he didn't know because that meant he lost access to the building.
2: Access to it, yeah.
0: And they were talking about just like when he got that news, literally he just head down on his desk and and literally cried. And probably, I don't know, less than 10 years later, that house was torn down. And I know after the fact, I wasn't there when it was torn down either, but I was around him and he was like, the devil did that. (laughs) Of course, he thought this was the greatest house that ever lived. That was done. Yeah. And it was poured in place concrete house in the middle of Highland Park. Mm. And he thought the people that tore it down were complete morons because of course, this house was amazing. Yeah. Why would anybody tear down this bunker? (laughs) That was a bit of a shot. I didn't need to do that. It wasn't a bad project, but it it was different for sure. And somebody wanted to be in that location, but they didn't want to live in a concrete house. They just didn't want that. So it got torn down and. I know that it bothered that person. I'd be surprised if they didn't think about that at least a few times a year. Hmm. So.
2: I think it's inevitable. At some point, if you're in this game long enough, I think it's inevitable consequence that your work gets demolished more than yeah. likely. At least some of it.
0: Well, history tells us that because of history, everything you do is going to get torn down. Yeah. <laughs> Statistically speaking, everything you will ever do yeah. will n- not exist at some point. So. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to wrap the show up with the question portion, and we're going to get to this week's Would You Rather? And this has been a hotly contested discussion point in my own office for weeks, to the point where I wrote it up on the marker board in my office so people could vote. And let me tell you, people are pissed based on the answers. Someone's like, oh, you're an idiot. What's interesting about this question is the answer seems to be so obvious to every person. Except for if you don't choose that same, they think that you're like, what's, what's you're you're broken.
2: Okay. I got you.
0: So here it is. The premise is you're going to be deposited. This is one of our deserted island kind of scenarios. So you're deposited on this deserted island for a period of five years and you have all basic creature comfort. This is not a survivalist question. So included in all the things that you're provided is an amazing sound system. But you have to choose the music that you're going to bring. And of course... As we do, there are restrictions and requirements associated with what you can bring. So your options are, you can choose 60 songs, seven albums, or the complete musical library of two artists or bands. There you go. And I will tell you, the the leanings in my office are towards seven albums. And in my brain, I go, that's the wrong answer. And I'm so in the minority on this. I mean, I might be like 20% like the songs and 70% likes the albums and 10% likes the artists. So what we've started to conclude is it has to do with the breadth of your musical taste is what it is. If I asked my neighbors 10th grade daughter. She's going to go, uh, I would like the complete musical library of Taylor Swift and Dua Lipa. That's what she would choose. And she's like five years. Awesome. I'm covered. Done. If I choose it, I'm going 60 songs. Cause for me, I don't think like most albums probably have about 10 songs on them anyway. So we're not really talking about that much more music to begin with.
2: Yeah. It's go with 10. Yeah. It's going to be about the same to me.
0: Some of them, like if you chose like Pink Floyd, the wall that like, okay, well that's, that's 30 some songs. Right. So yeah. clearly you, if you're going to pick an album just because it's got a lot more music on it, I go, I can't get behind that as a mechanism for choosing. Mm. And most of the time when I listen to music, it's because I'm in the mood for a certain type of music. And the people that know me know that I I really get into this kind of stuff and my musical leanings are all over the place. So I view seven albums or the musical library of two people as a massive restriction. I don't want to be limited to just seven types of music. I want Mm -hmm. one or two or three songs from a whole, like if I want to listen to jazz or if I want to listen to rock or if I want to listen to metal or if I want to listen to reggae, if I want to listen to, you know, I think I would choose that would be about how I would go about solving that problem is I want the songs because I can get the variety and I can cover as many genres as possible. So that's the logic I put behind this.
2: Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me coming from you. I pretty much assumed that that was going to be your answer because you kind of have musical ADHD sort of, (laughs) (laughs) but in a good way, (laughs) because I've been around you enough to know, and my brain doesn't work that way. And oddly enough, for me, it's probably I'm actually leaning to the complete musical library from two different artists.
0: Yeah, I thought I thought that could be your possible
2: answer. And mainly because it's just that would be something that I could tolerate for five years straight. I would pick two artists that I could handle to listening to their music over and over and over again. Because the problem to me with the 60th song thing, the way that I look at it would be, okay. even if I have 12 different genres I want to listen to. At a max, that's five songs from each genre. So I'm just going to be forced to listen to those five songs over and over and over and
1: over again.
2: Yes. I don't know. Over time, that would not work for me. Or the fact that if I just put 60 songs on shuffle and I skip through all those genres, which I know that that's what you like, (laughs) right? You like that? That makes me bonkers. Yeah. I can't mix genres. If I'm going to listen to jazz, it's jazz. I'm not going to go from jazz to metal to rock to rap to what? No, I can't do that. Yeah. My brain doesn't work that way musically. And so I would probably just pick the two complete musical libraries. For me, that's not about the quantity of it. It's more about, I don't know, to me, there's just something soothing to the fact of like, I'm just going to listen to this whole person's catalog and that's fine. But yeah, the seven albums to me is probably, I would say for me, is probably the least good choice.
0: (laughs) You and me, we're on the minority. That's the overwhelming choice.
2: Yeah, I don't understand that because again, it would just be snapshots and I It's hard for me to even say, I mean, in that instance, that there would be seven albums that I would have full albums, unless it would be seven albums from the same artist, and then I just might as well pick their whole catalog, right?
0: Then you get them all, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, because to me, there's there's less variety in saying seven albums than there is in 60 songs. And so if I was about variety, it would be 60 songs. Yes. And if I'm about...
0: They think it's quantity. For them, it's a quantity thing, but they think that the library has two... They're trying to find the balance between variety and quantity.
2: And quantity, yeah.
0: And so the the musical library gives you, that's all quantity, with very little variety.
2: Depends on the artist you pick, but yeah.
0: Well, so for example, like, and this is the thing, and I thought, oh, we'll turn this into like a post or something, like everyone has to list their 60 songs, so you got to build a thing or, you know, pick your artist. Yeah. I brought up the idea, I said, well, if I was going to do a library, the complete catalog, yeah, I'd go, I'd have to pick somebody like. Bach or Beethoven or Mozart because if I just want to listen to like a lot of different stuff I could hit oh let's listen to Bach for the next 397 days straight yeah because their catalog is gargantuan there's a lot there yeah do I want to listen to Dave Matthews band I don't think I could do it yeah and I I like Dave Matthews band but like after probably two albums I'm like it's all the same I get it yeah little violin in the background and, and you know i got it i got it i can't do it
2: yeah well see here's my cheat code for this one i would pick somebody like howard shore who is a musical composer for movies and stuff like that yes his whole catalog is a wide variety of sounds and music i mean it'll all be instrumental which is what i prefer anyway but i mean he wrote the scores to multiple multiple probably hundreds of movies and so if i got his whole catalog I would have access to a wide variety of of sounds and scores. And so that's my cheat code for that. Lane? Yeah.
0: His was Hans Zimmer.
2: Yeah, see? Same thing,
0: exactly. He goes, that dude's written tons of he's got a million albums yeah. and it's all over the place.
2: Those two would could be I'd have to really dive down into their catalogs to see exactly which one, but those are would be two really good top choices for a catalog cuz it's all over the place. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, this is one that I I really would if you have the bandwidth to weigh in with a vote on site just do it you don't have to you can use a fake name i don't care what you do you don't even have to explain it just write 60 songs seven albums or two artists
2: why don't we do an instagram poll
0: H- hold on i could do that i could do an instagram poll so but here's the thing if you get the police you get the police you don't get sting yeah yeah right just i mean there's some clarification it's not like if they were in the group yeah If you go the Beatles, for example,
2: you don't get all John Lennon, yeah, or Paul McCartney,
0: yeah, or you don't get Paul McCartney and you don't get Wings, like you just you get the Beatles. That's what you get.
3: The Beatles, yeah, 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 exactly.
0: Yeah, I guess I could do. I might actually do that then. Do a poll. I'm going to lose. I feel very confident that I will lose because. So I actually really appreciate the way you said it because I took that as a compliment that I have musical ADHD. Because Lane was over here the other night and we're just going down so many rabbit holes. I go, hey, check this out. This is from Cambodia. And he's like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding? Listen to that. He's like, yeah, I'm not listening to this. But see, like me. I mean, I'll give it a go.
2: Yeah, and I'm with you on that. I mean, I have wide musical varied tastes. There's probably hardly anything I won't listen to. It's just I don't want to skip around. I want to stick within a genre for a while. Oh, yeah. I don't want to go from one song to one song to one song. I want to be like, We're
0: all over the place.
2: Let's fill into this vibe a little bit before we switch again. To me, that's where your music ADHD drives me nuts is because it's like, this song and then the next song and a completely different thing and another genre. And it, like we're all over the place instead of just,
0: and I can't even make it through the whole song. If I no, get over here and I'm yeah, playing songs for people. Most of the time you
2: can't. I know. Well I am well aware. I'm
1: well aware.
0: He gave me a little grief. Cause we went from Dengue fever, which is a Cambodian group yeah. to Willie Nelson.
2: Yeah. See that kind of stuff. I, <laughs>
0: he's like, he's bonkers. like, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, bonkers. and then we went to Robert Cray after that. <laughs> and he's like, He's like, what is
2: happening? <laughs> yeah. See, that's, this is my issue. Not that you like those songs or that I wouldn't listen to a wide variety of music. I mean, my catalog, iTunes or whatever, is huge, huge. Yeah. But it's just the consistency or whatever order or frequency of changing genres that gets to me.
0: All right. I got you. Okay. Well, I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 133. Ask the Show 2023 Fall Edition. Special thanks to today's sponsor, Construction Specialties. They are so focused on the importance of Mastering Movement that they have created CEUs specifically on Mastering Movement. Each course is worth one AIA HSW and is part of the Mastering Movement Academy by CS. Visit MasteringMovement.net to take this and other courses. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building, Design, and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast.
2: Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish an inquisitive new episode.
0: While you're there, please take a few moments to leave us a five-star
2: Ask a Question Other Than the Color of My Underwear rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this instructive episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.